we could be talking about sports, we could be talking about business, we could be talking about money, religion, you name it. It's not that our opinions don't matter, they do. It's just that there's so much more common ground between us and amongst us as human beings. And it's easy to forget that. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am overjoyed to share another exceptional guest with you. Today, we have Mike Robbins. He's the author of five books, including his newest title, We're All in This Together, Creating a Team of Culture of High Performance, Trust, and Belonging, which is available in bookstores and Amazon. Get it today. It's out everywhere. For the past 20 years, he's been a sought-after speaker and consultant who delivers keynotes and seminars for some of the top organizations in the world. His clients include Google, Wells Fargo, Microsoft, Genentech, eBay, Harvard University, Gap, LinkedIn, the Oakland A's, and many others. He and his work have been featured in the New York Times and Harvard Business Review, as well as on NPR and ABC News. He's a regular contributor to Forbes, hosts a top weekly podcast, and his books have been translated into 15 different languages. Mike, welcome to the show. It is great to have you here on the Daily Helping Podcast. Dr. Richard, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And this is this is a timely topic today. We're all in this together, and I can't wait to dive into this. But I'm really curious because you've been doing this for two decades. I love to get at my guests' wise, their superhero origin story. What was it that put you on the path you're on today? Well, what put me on the path originally... You know, I was, so I was, I grew up here in the San Francisco Bay Area where I still live. I played baseball as a kid all growing up. I loved it. Uh, I actually got drafted out of high school by the New York Yankees. I didn't end up signing a contract with the Yankees because I got an opportunity to play baseball in college at Stanford. So I go to Stanford, play there. Then I got drafted out of Stanford by the Kansas City Royals and I signed a pro contract. And the way it works in baseball, you know, here in the U.S., you get drafted by a major league team. You have to go into the minor leagues, right? And there's a bunch of levels of the minor leagues. You got to work your way up. Unfortunately for me, I was a pitcher doing pretty well, working my way up in the minor leagues. But I went out to pitch one night, my third season, still in the minors, threw one pitch, tore ligaments in my elbow, ultimately led to the end of my career. It didn't end instantaneously. I actually had three surgeries over the next two years, but basically was forced to retire from baseball at the age of 25 after I started playing when I was seven. And, you know, I was devastated, as you can imagine, by this personally. But what I had become most fascinated by while I was playing was two things. First of all, I noticed it wasn't always the most talented people that were the most successful. And it wasn't always the most successful people that were the happiest and fulfilled. So I found that really interesting because I was like, how do you actually get to that place of happiness or fulfillment? Like, where do you learn that? And then the other thing that I noticed, and this is very much related to the book that I just wrote, we're all in this together, is that it wasn't always the most talented teams that were the best teams. Because I was on some teams sometimes where we had really good players, but the team wasn't very good. And then I was on some other teams where, you know, the talent was decent, but the team was fantastic. 
And it was like, we would beat other teams that had better players than we did. I'm like, well, what is that? And we called it team chemistry. No one could quite define exactly what the heck that was, but you knew when you had it and you definitely knew when you didn't have it. And it was like this powerful force that I was really, really excited about and interested in. I erroneously thought that that was a sports thing. Then I got my first job after baseball. When I came back home, I got a job in advertising sales, online advertising sales in the late 90s during the dot-com boom. And I realized, oh, that's not a sports thing. That's a human thing. In business, we just call it culture. (laughs) It's similarly that sort of intangible quality that brings us together or pushes us apart, has us do great things as a group collectively or not. And after just a couple of years, Dr. Richard, working for a couple of different tech companies, I started my consulting business 20 years ago, really with this curiosity and this obsession, both individually, what does it take for us to turn our talent into success and our success into fulfillment? And then collectively, what does it really take for a team or a group of any kind to come together and do something extraordinary together? So that's what I've been speaking about and writing about for all these years. And this book that I just wrote, my fifth, is really kind of a culmination of all that work over the last 20 years. And and I definitely want to take a deep dive into the book, but I want to circle back to your sports career because I think right now, a, a lot of people listening to this had a pretty good idea of what their career was going to look like and their trajectory. And now we're all sitting in our homes because yep. of this pandemic. And so that process for you now, obviously the three, the three surgeries on, on your throwing arm, um, you know, I'm a sports fan, so I, I know as an armchair expert on such things, how long it <laughs> takes to, to rehab from those, you know, watching pictures of my favorite team, you know, blow yeah. out their elbow and, and go through the Tommy John procedure and then what that's like. Yeah. What was the process like for you and how long did it take to really come to terms with the fact that what you thought you were going to do for your whole life was never going to happen? It was a journey. I mean, I, so I had my first injury my senior year in high school, I missed my freshman year in college, had a, had a minor surgery that year. So the reality, and look, playing sports at a high level, at a, a collegiate level and wanting to play professionally, I mean, all of us know, at least in theory, th- this isn't going to last forever and you could get injured and it could be over tomorrow. So there is that, but kind of like we all know we're going to die. We don't really think about it. We live like that's not going to happen. So it scared me when I was in college and I started to ponder it. I also got into an accident at the end of my freshman year in college that was like a near-death experience that then put my baseball injury into some perspective. That said, when I was able to recover from both of those and get back and get drafted and I'm playing, and then when I finally was done with my career, the biggest realization, Dr. Richard, that I had was when I looked back on the whole experience, I realized I wasted a lot of my time and energy thinking that I wasn't good enough, comparing myself to everyone around me and literally like holding my breath, hoping that I didn't screw it up. And I was like, oops, I think I missed the point. Like I didn't spend nearly as much time enjoying the experience and also appreciating how good I was. Was I the biggest, strongest, best pitcher of all time? No, but I was actually pretty darn good and I didn't really give myself credit for it. And so what I learned from that experience, and although what's going on right now in the world for many of us right now is so different, There is something similar, and I've been saying this to friends and people just recently, that having injuries in sports when you have to sit out and wait for a long time and not know when you come back, if you're going to be as good as you were before, will you keep getting to play or not? Having a major career change, life change like that, which many of us have had, whether we played pro baseball and hurt our arms like I did or not, it's super scary in the moment because we don't know how the story plays out. 
But looking back on it, we can always connect the dots and go, oh, that heartbreak or that what seemed like a derailment of my life, as painful and scary as it was, actually catapulted me to where I am today. I think the hard part and the vulnerable part for all of us right now is we don't know how this plays out. And so we're right in the middle of it. And it's hard to know and to have enough faith and trust in the middle of the story that it's going to turn out okay while we're right in the middle of it. But that's actually ironically where it's most important for us to have that faith and trust. I love that. It's very well said. We can't see the forest for the trees until we're you know, flying in that helicopter and have a chance to look back and look down. So I I might've just totally bastardized two or three really decent (laughs) quotes. So I apologize to anyone who spoke them and is listening to this right now. In all seriousness though, you've been doing this for a really long time. And I know you said that your most recent book, we're all in this together, is the culmination of your learning and experiences for the past 20 years. So take us through a deep dive into the book and what somebody's going to get out of reading it? Well, first of all, I mean, one of the reasons that I wrote this book and wrote it now, I mean, I wrote it last year, you know, knowing it was going to come out now, but the book really focuses on how do we create a team culture of high performance, of trust, of belonging. This is a lot of the work and the research that I've done over the last couple of decades. And, you know, big companies that I get, we get, me and my team get a chance to partner with. This is the work that we do when we go in and work with them. However, there was a secondary reason And now it turns out to be a third reason that I didn't even know at the time why I wrote this book and wanted it to come out now. The country that we live in, the world that we're in, is so incredibly divided. And this is not a new phenomenon, but there does seem to be an added level of intensity to it over the last few years that I think for a lot of us, irrespective of our political views or whatever, we notice it. And it's not healthy and it's not comfortable and it's not ideal, I think, for anybody. And so I wanted to write a book with the title, We're All in This Together, and have it come out this year because I wanted to both speak to what can teams and groups and and people do to come together in the work that we do, but what can we do sort of culturally to find common ground with people, especially when we're different and we may disagree. Now it turns out we're in the midst of this unique and odd and kind of terrifying experience of, well, the world just shut down and... We don't know what's happening and why. And what's interesting is so many people from political leaders to celebrities to business leaders are literally using the phrase, we're all in this together because we are, even though we have different experiences and your experience and my experience and how it impacts your business or your life or your health and my health or your family and my family may all be different, but we're dealing with a similar set of sort of macro circumstances. And so this book for me was an attempt to one of the core things, Dr. Richard, that I learned all those years playing baseball, being a part of so many different teams. And then for the last 20 years, partnering with and consulting with and working with so many extraordinary teams and some that aren't so extraordinary is that the ones that really thrive have this intangible quality that boils down to this sense of we're in this together. We're going to win or lose together. We're going to succeed or fail together. There's no them. It's all us. And that may sound like a simple concept, and it is. Then we all kind of nod our heads and go, yeah, that's right. But that's actually really hard to practice and to stay true to and to engage with on a regular basis, especially when things get stressful or when it seems like it's not fair and he or she's getting something that I'm not and I want credit and all the human elements that go into it. So like, those are some of the core reasons that I wrote the book. And to me, in some ways, it's even more relevant and more important than ever. 
No question. From a marketing standpoint, you got to be grateful that all the politicians are dropping the name of your title everywhere. But but in all it's, seriousness, it's, you're... it's bizarre and surreal, I got to say, <laughs> from that standpoint. <laughs> but but you know, in seriousness, yes, you know, this is this is a time. It's it's been so interesting, and when you are following people online and what they're what they're talking about is how how you know nobody's really and some are are getting political. But I mean, for the most part, it's kind of like after 9-11. I remember right. after 9-11, how everybody really seemed unified. Yeah. And you're seeing a lot more of that now because of this pandemic for very different reasons. But, totally. But we are seeing it. So uh, well, I'm ex- go, ahead. go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, it's funny. There's a story I share in the book from a few years back where I was sitting on an airplane. And long story short, based on the, the news that me and the guy next to me were watching just randomly on the JetBlue flight that was going, we got into a discussion that turned into an argument about politics. And it was interesting because I'm like, why am I arguing with this guy? I don't even know. And, but it just, I sort of was doing it almost as like a sociological experiment. What's going right. to happen here, right? And it, it got kind of heated. And at one point, I just stopped him and I said, okay, hold on. Because he was starting to call me names and it was getting a little bit... I mean, I didn't feel like we were going to you know, actually get into like a fist fight or something. But I stopped... And I said to him, I asked if he had children. He said, yes. I said, I do too. We have two girls who, who they're now 14 and 11, but this was a couple of years ago. So whatever their ages were at the time I said, and he said he had four kids. He was, he looked to be about 10 years older than me. And his kids were grown. Like his oldest was 30 and the other three were in their twenties. And I said to him, I said, do you ever worry? Cause sometimes I worry that even though I try to do the best I can as a father, that like I'm screwing up or I'm inadvertently messing up my children. Like, I don't want to, but do you ever worry about that? And he looked at me kind of like, you know, and he said, well, yeah, of course. Like, I think everybody, every parent feels like that, at least at some point. And I said to him, you look, I have really strong opinions about politics and what's going on in the world. And you do too. And obviously we don't agree with each other. I said, and maybe if I'm really honest, sometimes as passionate as I am with my opinions, these issues are so complex. I don't totally understand them. Maybe I'm not right about all this stuff. And, and, he, and, I, and I, he kind of looked at me and sort of nodded in this weird way. Like he wasn't sure, like, was I trying to play some Jedi mind trick on him? But he kind of acknowledged the same thing. And it was this moment of like human to human. We were just having this kind of real connection. We, and, we, and the conversation basically ended and we just sort of went back to whatever we were doing. And I share that only because to your point of what's happening right now, again, it's not that our opinions don't matter and they're not important, whether we're talking about politics or even, you know, we could be talking about sports, we could be talking about business, we could be talking about money, religion, you name it. It's not that our opinions don't matter, they do. It's just that there's so much more common ground between us and amongst us as human beings. And it's easy to forget that, especially when we're tweeting at each other or we're talking to people who only agree with us about who people who don't agree with, you know, but again, this doesn't just happen in the political realm. This happens inside of organizations and teams and families all the time, right? It's like the, the marketing department and the sales department or the legal department and the this department or the this office and that office, or, you know, like the extended family or this group and that group after the thanks, whatever it is, like we separate ourselves. And it's not that we're not entitled to do that. It's just in most cases, it doesn't actually serve us. And we miss out on so many opportunities for connection, for collaboration, and for really creating with each other. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. 
I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. Well, let's let's use that as an opportunity by talking about your book to help people connect and collaborate during yeah. these times. So take us through the tenets of, of your book. So there's four pillars. And the first one is about creating what's called psychological safety. Psychological safety is basically group trust. It means that the group is safe enough for me to do what? To speak up, take a risk, make a mistake, even fail, be different, and know that I'm not going to get kicked out of the group for simply just having a different opinion or making a mistake. Like I won't get shamed. I won't get ridiculed. Any of us, anyone listening, if you think about any group or team that you're a part of, whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whether it's in the past, when if you know that team feels safe, I can bring my whole self. I can show up fully. I know I'm, I might be challenged. I might be given some feedback, but I know, right? That makes all the difference in the world. You know, Google did a study a few years ago called Project Aristotle. They spent three years studying what are the necessary components for teams to create high performance? What, do, what does a team need? And after three years of studying this, they came back with some findings. And the number one, by far, the most important element was psychological safety. And the way that we bring forth more psychological safety, and this relates to what's going on right now, is that we show up authentically. And, and I define authenticity as honesty without self-righteousness and with vulnerability. I like to say it's lowering the waterline on the iceberg. Like if we really knew how you felt in this moment, one of the exercises I do with teams a lot of times is be at an offsite and we sit around and that's the exercise. And we start and I say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go around the table and everyone's going to get real in this moment about how they're really feeling, what they're really thinking. You don't have to say anything you don't want to say. And I'll start. And it just, you're going to have a minute or two to just repeat this phrase. If you really knew me, you'd know this about me. And the instructions aren't to necessarily tell a story about when you were three and what happened. I mean, you can if you want, but it's more, if we really knew you in this moment, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? And like with my own team over the last number of weeks as we've been going through this, almost every single meeting we have, which is all virtual like everybody else right now, uh-huh. that's how we start every meeting. If you really knew me, you'd know this is what's going on for me. And I've been on an emotional roller coaster just like everybody else. I have moments where I think, this is amazing. There's so many opportunities to like, this is the worst thing ever. I think we're all going to die and it's going to be terrible. <laughs> and everywhere in between, because like that's part of the human experience. And right now, it's just ratcheted up to a level 10 for a lot of us. And so one of the ways that we connect more deeply with each other is that we have a willingness to get real and we give other people the space and the permission to do the same. Yeah. That's amazing. Starting every meeting with that. Yeah. That's amazing. And sometimes it can just be a quick little check-in. I mean, sometimes we're busy and we got stuff to get to, but it's like, I'll even say, look, we're going to do an abbreviated version. Just say one or two words about how you're actually feeling right now. No judgment, no nothing. It could be excited and grateful. It could be angry and miserable, like whatever. It's like, okay, we've all checked in in a real way. And now, okay, let's get to the conversation. Because I just think, look, one of the reasons that I do this, and I've always been wired this way, I was from the time I was a little kid, I was sitting in class and you know, I was a pretty good student. I was a pretty good athlete. I was like good at stuff. But I was always the kid that was sitting there first and going, why are we learning this? When am I going to use this in real life? And secondly, how come no one's talking about 
all of these feelings I have inside of me, like, am I crazy? Am I the only one that feels this way? And as a boy, and you know this, we got the man training, which is like, suck it up, be a man, boys don't cry. So I just thought I was weird for having all of these feelings and being as sensitive as I was. And then I was an athlete and all the guys on the team were like, what are you, soft Robins? And I was like, no, I'm fine. But it was really like, I. so again, I've always been really passionate about our own tapping into our own true feelings and connecting with others. And yeah, we still got to get stuff done. We still, whether it's at home, like, you got to go take out the trash and do all the home things. Whether it's at work, it's like you got to go create something or sell something or produce something because we're not all here just to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. We're actually trying to create whatever it is we're creating. But if we don't connect on a human level, it makes it very difficult for us to tap into our collective power. Perfect. So that was pillar number one, psychological safety. Mike, take us through the second pillar. So the second pillar is about focusing on inclusion and belonging. And this is obviously really important for us to talk about in today's world. And a lot of conversation as needs to be and should be around diversity and inclusion. One of the things, Dr. Richard, that I found when I started to research this more, and it's interesting to start to look at and delve into diversity, inclusion, you know, as a straight white man, there's interesting aspects of it. For me, growing up in Oakland, California, you know, raised by my single mom, also having spent a lot of time in my early life, ironically, to some degree, as even though being in the majority in our culture, being in a minority on my sports teams and in school, I didn't realize how much that impacted my experience until I got a little bit older and I got out in the world. And I studied actually at Stanford. I got my degree in American studies with a specialization in race and ethnicity. But up until a few years ago, it's not that I was afraid to talk about race or gender or any of these other issues. I just didn't feel like it was either appropriate or I didn't know exactly how to do it. And what I've learned and what I've seen, especially in the last few years, is yes, these conversations and these topics are emotional, they're sensitive, they're difficult, they're challenging for so many reasons and on so many levels. And for many of us, if they don't relate to us directly, we're either not aware of them or if we are, there's a fear of how do I talk about these things or bring these things up without putting my foot in my mouth and having people think, well, well you're sexist, you're racist, you don't, you know, all. So it's like fraught with so much. However, at a deeper level, what we're really after, particularly when we think about our groups and our teams, is a sense of belonging. And everybody, irrespective of our background, of our race, our gender, our orientation, our religion, our political view, whatever, everyone knows what it feels like to both belong and not belong. And belonging isn't just a feel-good thing. It's actually a fundamental human need on Maslow's hierarchy, right? It's right there after safety and survival needs, right? Those when we know that physiologically we're safe and we have some way to sort of you know take care of ourselves and the people around us, the next level is belonging. So if we can address that human need, what happens is you think about every great team or group you've ever been a part of. That sense of I belong here, I'm a full member here, has us engage, has us do our best work, has us have each other's backs, has us commit all those things. And the challenges in the world in which we live, whether we're in a leadership position or not. How do we create an environment where people really feel like they belong? And there's a number of things that we can do. One of them is, again, being authentic, being vulnerable, creating that psychological safety, but really connecting with and relating to people as unique and complex human beings, which we all are, instead of putting people into categories, which it's easy to do. So it's tricky and it's, it's tough, but it's really important for great teams to be able to do that and to be able to think about that and embrace a lot of that. Do you find in the teams you work with that that's easier or harder now, given what you just said, that 
you know, these sorts of issues are such a hot button in our society right now. I think in some ways it's easier because there's more awareness. And in other ways, it's harder because it's so sensitive. And so many of us, for different reasons, are walking on eggshells. And depending on where you live, you know, you live in a part of the country in Atlanta that's different than where I live in San Francisco. And, and again, it, it's better or worse, harder or different. It depends on the environment in which we find ourselves in. And I think a lot of times what happens is they're just things that, you know, I'll give, I'll give you an example from the book that I, my wife, Michelle, and I were at a workshop. And the woman leading the workshop was talking about differences between men and women. And, you know, we were interested in the conversation. It was a great workshop. And at one point, the, the woman leading the workshop says, I'm going to ask the men a question and then I'm going to ask the women a question. Same question, but I want you to answer independently. All the men in the room, when was the last time you felt physically unsafe? I'm going to give you a few time frames. Just raise your hand once. Was it in the last 10 years, the last five years, the last year, the last six months? The last, I mean, she went all the way down to like, and, and I raised my hand like within the last year. I remembered a time being on the road. At a, I was speaking at an event in Washington, D.C., and I went out, and then I got lost getting back to my hotel, and I was walking around late at night, didn't know where I was going, and I was like, I don't feel safe. Like I remember that physically, right? Then she asked the women the same question. And as she's going through 10 years, five years, a year, none of the women are raising their hands. And I'm kind of confused. And then she gets to, within the last week, a few hands go up. Then she gets to, within the last 24 hours, 80% of the women in the room, including my wife, sitting right next to me, raise her hand. And most of the men in the room, we're all looking at each other. I'm looking at Michelle and I'm looking at the other guys like, what? When? This was at like a hotel in San Francisco, not a crowd that I would have judgmentally assumed or walking around in places that they would necessarily feel physically unsafe. But the woman said, this is one of the many fundamental differences between men and women. And we hardly ever even talk about it. And most of the women were looking at all this like, how do you guys not know this? But to me, it was just a reminder of like, oh, I think I pay attention to these things. I'm the father of two daughters. I was raised by a single mom with an older sister with like, I pay attention to issues of gender equity and all these things. And like, it, that was like, hit me right between the eyes. Like, I don't think about that when I'm walking out around in the world, just as an example. So again, can we bring these things up in a way and think about these things in a way? And for those of us who find ourselves in more dominant groups, can we be more mindful? Can we check in? Can we listen? Can we learn? And for those of us who find ourselves in less dominant groups, do we, have, do we feel safe enough to bring stuff up and talk about things in a way that can actually bring people together? There's another concept that I learned researching this, the difference between calling people out and calling people in. Calling people out, which has to happen sometimes, like, hey, that's not cool, or don't say that. That's what... But most of the time, people say things or do things, even if they're offensive, more often than not, it's not coming from a malicious place. It's not being aware or not understanding or doing something. I didn't realize that was... right. Can we call people in, invite them into that conversation? Hey, here's how that is. And it's not just about some of the hot button issues. This happens all the time. A leader makes a decision and I don't like it because it impacts my job in a certain way. Do I feel safe enough to go say, hey, you know what? When you said that, here's how it impacted me. And it's not about my race or my gender or my background or my age or any my you know religion. It's just about... But sometimes if it is about those things that are more sensitive, can we bring them up? But again, it comes back to, this actually leads to the third pillar, which is, can we have conversations that I call sweaty palm conversations? Let's talk about that. Let's dive right? in. My, a mentor of mine years ago said to me this great thing, Dr. Richard. He said, Mike, you know what stands between you and the kind of relationships you really want to have with people? I said, what's that? He said, it's probably a 10-minute sweaty palm conversation you're too afraid to have. He said, if you get really good at those 10-minute sweaty palm conversations, you'll have fantastic relationships. You'll talk about issues, you'll bring up stuff, you'll address conflicts, you'll get to know people who are different than you, you'll talk about the elephant in the room, you'll admit when you make a mistake, you'll ask for feedback, you'll give feedback, you do all the things that are necessary to have really strong, healthy relationships. 
He said, but if you do like most of us and you avoid those conversations because they can be uncomfortable, they get messy. Sometimes people get upset or get their feelings hurt or they don't like you or like what you say. He's like, then you end up just being a victim of who you live with, who you work with, who you're around. He said, but if you lean into the discomfort and you have those conversations sooner rather than later and get better at them, it'll benefit all your relationships. Now he was right. And like most humans and probably most people listening to us right now, I don't love having those conversations. They're not my favorite. They're just necessary. I had one earlier today with someone on my team and I was nervous about it and I was trying to figure out how to avoid it. And then finally, and we had the conversation and it didn't go perfect, but it went really well. And at the end of it, we both said, gosh, so glad we talked about that. Because when we don't talk about those things, it takes up an enormous amount of space on our emotional hard drive that makes it difficult, not only for us to partner and collaborate and trust each other, but just to get other things done. So if teams and groups can create the kind of environment that's psychologically safe enough, that's inclusive and and people feel like they belong enough, then we can have those sweaty palm conversations that we need to have in order for us to connect, collaborate, build trust, and really be able to perform together. I think when I hear that sweaty palm conversation, I often think of the metaphor that it was actually not as bad as we thought it was or whatever. Again, I'm, I'm just killing quotes today in a really horrible way. But, yeah. you know, a lot of times everybody just wants to have those things, but nobody's afraid to, or everybody's too afraid to be the one to put that first step forward and, and actually broach that conversation. Totally. You know, it's like Brene Brown likes to say, choose courage over comfort. So we choose the courage. And usually if you think about it, it's the, it's the start of that conversation. It's the beginning. It's the diving into the deep end of the cold pool. Once we get in there, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable, but it's like a relief. Oh, we got it out there. 99 times out of 100. It's always better to have the conversation than not. Now, every now and again, it doesn't work out or it makes things worse. But even then, I always feel like if you and I have a built up resentment that we're not talking about, we finally talk about it. Even if you get really mad at me and you're super upset and it like throws a big you know, monkey wrench in our relationship... At least it's not hanging out in the back of my head anymore. I'm not holding on to it. It's out there. It's okay. Now Richard's really mad at me and he thinks I'm a jerk and this is a problem. We have something to work on, but there's something to do as opposed to I was holding on to it and building up that resentment. Most of the time when we talk about it, we're going to work it out or find some understanding or common ground that's going to make things better. And it's going to free up all that time, space, and energy that we were holding on to. One of the things I've learned over the years of working with all kinds of teams, Richard, it's amazing, even all the way to like executive teams in really big companies with super smart, sophisticated people. It's amazing to me what happens when teams start to really tell the truth because I can't tell you how much time and energy gets wasted with the meeting after the meeting, right? The third and fourth and fifth hand conversation about, well, he said this and she said that and can you believe that? And why are they doing this? It's like, have the conversation in the room one of the things I challenge the teams I work with, particularly leadership teams, is like, talk about the stuff here. Be divided together, meaning fight with each other, challenge each other in a respectful way, and then be united apart, not the other way around. Usually we're united together. Everyone nods and goes, yes, that's a great idea. Awesome. Wonderful. And then leaves and starts throwing each other under the bus. And it becomes a problem, not just for the team, but for the whole organization. It's like when mom and dad are fighting, the kids don't feel safe. Sometimes mom and dad need to fight, but you got to go in another room and fight fair and fight clean and work it out. So when you come out of that room, the kids know mom and dad are okay. We're safe, right? And that's the same thing a lot of times with teams is like the team, the leadership team, the boss ends up being kind of for better or worse, mom or dad. And we got to figure out how to make sure there's alignment there so that everybody else feels safe. I love that. We, we probably could have done 
a four episode series on each of the pillars. You, I know that we can <laughs> we can go so deep in them, but I want to be very respectful of your time, Mike. Yes. Talk us through the fourth pillar. So the fourth pillar is care about and challenge each other. Basically, it comes down to this. I had one of my favorite humans in my life on my podcast last fall named Dean Stotts. Dean was my coach at Stanford. He coached at Stanford for 37 years. He's a dear friend, a mentor, someone I adore. And he said this really simple but powerful thing, Dr. Richard, when I interviewed him. He said, Mike, my philosophy... And he had a ton of success. They won, you know, Stanford won two national championships, one of the top college baseball programs in the country. Dean was responsible for recruiting. I mean, this guy knows his stuff. Happens to also be an incredible human being who has had a huge impact on my life. He said, my philosophy for coaching over almost four decades was this. I got to love them hard so I can push them hard. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I knew, Mike, when I was coaching you and all the guys I coached all those years, that if you knew that I loved you, that I cared about you, that I had your back, that I wanted what was best for you, and you knew that, then I could challenge you. I could push you hard, like out of your comfort zone, like really get up underneath you to try to get the best out of you. And if I did those two things in that order, then I could potentially be a good coach for you. And that would benefit not only you personally, but the team. And when he said that, I thought, gosh, you know, that just epitomizes what great leaders do, what great teams do, is we create an environment where people know we're valued, we're cared about, we belong, people have our backs personally. We may not all be best friends. It's not to mean that everyone's going to be your favorite person to hang out with, but you can care about people even if you don't particularly love their personality or want to go have a beer with them or a meal or hang out and watch the ball game, right? But if we don't care about each other, we can't push each other and challenge each other. If we challenge each other without caring, everyone's defensive. If we care but don't push, it might feel all warm and fuzzy, but we can't really do anything great or extraordinary together because in order to do that, we all have to be able to step out of our comfort zone, right? If you come at me and say, hey, Mike, you got to work on this and that and the other thing, the first thing is going to, I'm going to listen to you only if I already know you care about me. Even if your advice is spot on and I really need it, I'm not going to listen to it until I know and you've proven to me that you value me and care about me and vice versa. So we got to be able to do both of those things at the same time. And if we can do that, I mean, think about this in our families, with our spouse, with our children, with, right? If we do that with our, if people know, hey, dad, mom has my back, cares about me. I mean, all of this stuff, it's, it's universal in so many ways. Like that makes so much sense. And, and I wish we had more time to talk about it, but we don't. We'll have to have you back on uh, when, when your sixth book comes out, then we'll, we'll have you back on the show. Uh, but as you know, Everybody that comes on The Daily Helping, I ask them a single question to wrap up, and that is, what is your biggest helping, the one most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? You know, I think, Dr. Richard, I think of something. I've been fortunate to have a lot of great mentors in my life over the years and have learned a lot from them, which I'm incredibly humbled by and appreciative of. And many years ago, when I was first uh, starting my business, I was young. I was nervous. I didn't know if I could do it. I still have those moments all these years later, but it, it was a very significant time of fear and anxiety for me, doubting myself. And this mentor of mine said something to me that was pretty simple but profound. He said, Mike, uh, you're living your life as though you're trying to survive it. I said, yeah, so? He said, you have to remember something really important. I said, what's that? He said, nobody ever has. I said, what? He said, the mortality rate is holding strong at 100%. Stop trying to protect yourself. Stop trying to not fail. Stop trying to not be uncomfortable. Just stop trying to survive. Your job is to lean into this experience as fully as you can and see what happens and trust yourself. 
And I think for all of us, especially right now with everything that's going on in the world and all the uncertainty, look, it's okay if we get scared. It's okay if we feel uncomfortable. It's okay if we worry and doubt and all the things we do as human beings. And if we can remember, like we have more than this requires, no matter what happens. And the goal is not to get through this whole life unscathed and not get hurt and not make a fool of ourselves. Like we're all going to end up in the same place for however long or short we're here. So I try to remember that, especially when I get nervous and when I'm not sure how things are going to turn out. Thank you for sharing that. That was awesome and beyond timely. Really appreciate that. Mike, tell us where people can find you online. Best place to find me is at our website, which is mike-robbins.com. And if you actually go to mike-robbins.com forward slash together, that's where you can find out all about the new book and everything we got going on with that. Outstanding. And, and for everybody who is listening to this well, they're running on their treadmill. We got you covered. Everything Mike Robbins will be in the show notes for his episode at thedailyhelping.com, as well as in the Daily Helping app available in iTunes and Google Play. Mike, this has been such a great interview. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I want to thank each and every one of you as well who chose to listen to this episode. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. That's what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go do something nice for somebody else today. I know we're all in our homes, but do it online. Do it over the phone. Make a difference in somebody's life. And post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 